Father in heaven, we come before you this evening and we thank you for the opportunity of worshiping you and coming before you in prayer. And as we enter into this meeting this evening, we do want to remember those who are suffering tonight and those who are facing trouble. We want to remember the people in Mexico who have suffered a devastating earthquake today, as well as the people on the island of Dominica and some of the other islands that have already been affected by this latest Hurricane Maria. And we want to pray for the people in Puerto Rico and any other island that may be in the path of this hurricane that you would offer protection. So, Lord, we know that you are the sustainer of all things and that you can protect as you see fit, but we also know that you have allowed things to happen as the four angels are allowing the four winds to be released. So may we have our lives in order with you. May our hearts be right with you. May we trust in you, and may we follow you. And we just pray again for the people who have been affected by the earthquake, the people who are in this line of this hurricane that is coming. And be with us now as we enter into this meeting. May we shift gears in our minds to focus on spiritual things, biblical topics, and uh, may our minds rest on heavenly things these next few moments. Be with me, give me the words to speak, that these words would be a blessing to each one of us as we seek to follow you. So we thank you for bringing us out this evening. Be with us in this meeting, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for the message this evening is Adventism and the Vindication of God. And I want to start by reading a statement from Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 68 and 69. The plan of salvation had a broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. Did you know that? Now, obviously, the salvation of man is of utmost importance. But it had a broader and a deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded. Now, that's all important. But notice this next phrase. But it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. You realize that, yes, Jesus came to save you. That the God of the universe stooped down to this earth to bring you personal salvation. Yet that was not the only thing that was on the mind of God, on the mind of Christ, as he came to this earth. It was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of man would not only make heaven accessible to men, but before the universe, it would justify God and his Son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan. Now, I'm not going to spend really any time on, on the rebellion of Satan. We've already heard two excellent presentations on that this week. But I'm going to keep moving along in this idea that Jesus came to this earth, yes, to save us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it was not for this alone. I want you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Romans chapter 3, verse 4. And here the Apostle Paul says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and might, mightest overcome when thou art judged. You know, sometimes it's a bit hard to understand, Paul. Today's English version says you must win your case when you are being tried. The New International Version says so that you may be proved right in your words and prevail in your judging. But, you know, Paul, again, is borrowing from the Old Testament in this passage. But what he's saying is 
God, let you be true, but every man a liar. People can say whatever they want, but at the end of the day, when you have finished judging, may your name be clear. May you be proved to be true. May you be justified in what you say. Now, in order to understand a little bit more clearly what Paul is saying here, he's quoting Psalms 51, specifically David, who is speaking to God after he had sinned with Bathsheba. And let's pick it up in Psalms chapter 51, verse 1. David says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before thee. Now notice verse 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now notice this prayer of David, which Paul quotes in the book of Romans to say, there is a day that is coming when God will be judged. And when he is judged, he will be proven to be true, and man will be proven to be a liar who has spoken against God, and God will be justified by what he says. And David understands this because he is the one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he is repenting, and has, he is writing down his repentance, and it is in Scripture. He says, against you, God, only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And he's saying, not only does he say that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge, he's saying, wash me throughly. Now that's the King James language. You could say thoroughly, but it's through and through. Clean me up, God. Cleanse me from my sin. Have mercy, blot out my transgression. Here is what David is saying. God, I have sinned a terrible sin against you. And I know because of your mercy, you are going to forgive me. But here's my prayer. Because of this terrible sin that I have committed, I have dishonored your name. So when you forgive me, Please don't only just forgive me. Wash me through and through and clean me up so this never happens again. Because when you forgive me and you say that I am now a righteous man again, you will need to be justified when you say so. Because people could say, God, what business do you have forgiving David? How could you say that David is now justified by faith? How could you say now that David is forgiven and he is a righteous man by faith? And David understands that and says, Lord, I know because of your tender mercies you are going to forgive me. But when you forgive me, please cleanse me. Please clean me. Please wash me through and through so that this never happens again because I don't want your name to be dishonored when you speak on my behalf. Now, when have you ever confessed your sin to God in such a way? You know, the harsh reality for many of us is that we know sometimes that something that we're going to do is a sin, and we do it anyway, and we say, well, God will forgive me, and I'll just ask him to forgive me later when I ask him to forgive me. That's not a broken and a contrite heart that David is displaying here as he is coming before God and saying, have mercy upon me, God, according to your loving kindness, 
According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before thee. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou or that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. You see, there is something that is at stake here that David realizes. Yes, God is concerned about his personal salvation. God is concerned about David being saved. But David also knows that God's name must be vindicated before the universe when he says, I have saved David and made things right even though he sinned. And David is saying, God, when you speak, because of what I've done that has dishonored your name, please change my life so that there is evidence to support your case that I am now a righteous man again by faith. And that's why God would say of David that he was a man after God's own heart. Now, people like to go to town with it and say, see, David was a man after God's own heart, and he committed adultery with Bathsheba, so why does it matter what I do? Now, Ellen White has some things to say about that. She says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 720, paragraph 4, that David's sin misrepresented the character of God and cast reproach upon his name. So David understands that he has misrepresented the character of God. He understands that he has cast reproach upon the name of God. And furthermore... Ellen White says this. Very many reading the history, this is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 722, paragraph 4. Very many reading the history of David's fall have inquired, why has this record been made public? Why did God see fit to throw open to the world this dark passage in the life of one so highly honored of heaven? She goes on to say, the prophet in his reproof to David had declared concerning his sin, by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You know, sometimes in our selfishness, we think, oh, I can just do this and get away with it, and we forget to think about how this affects the name of God and the honor of his name. And so many times we ask silly questions such as, if I do this thing, will it affect my eternal salvation? Surely God will overlook this and still let me get into heaven, because look at what happened to David. Continuing. Through successive generations, listen to this, infidels have pointed to the character of David bearing this dark stain and have exclaimed in triumph and derision, this is the man after God's own heart. Thus a reproach has been brought upon religion, God and his word have been blasphemed, souls have been hardened in unbelief, and many under a cloak of piety have become bold in sin. But the history of David furnishes no countenance to sin. Listen to this. It was when he was walking in the counsel of God that he was called a man after God's own heart. When he sinned, this ceased to be true of him until by repentance he had returned to the Lord. So please don't go around and say, oh, David was a man after God's own heart and he was committing adultery with Bathsheba. No, he was not a man after God's own heart when he was committing adultery. But we see the evidence that he returned to being a man after God's own heart when in Psalms 51 he realizes that because of his sin, he has blasphemed the name of God. He has misrepresented the character of God. And because of God's tender mercy, he knows that God is going to forgive him. But he's saying, God, please cleanse me so that this won't happen again because you're putting your name on the line by saying, I am now righteous again. Now, how many of us see God in such a way? How many of us see God as someone who is putting his name on the line when he forgives us of our sins? Now, we understand David is a man after God's own heart, and he understands that God is a God of tender mercy. And, I mean, what David did is as bad as it could get. He had premeditated murder and adultery to go with it. 
I mean, by all accounts, you would say that there's no hope for that guy. And yet God forgave him. But because God forgave him, and God did, so here's the other amazing thing. God forgave him knowing that people would use this as an excuse of presumption to continue in their own sinful way. But because God is merciful and because he understood the sincerity of David's repentance, God forgave him. David became again a man after God's own heart when he came to God in repentance and said, God, I understand that your name is going to be on the line. And Paul understood this in Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Now, this is a statement that has been read this weekend already. I'm going to read it again. This is Education, page 263. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his idea, ideal brings grief to him. You know, I think if we would learn to sit at the foot of the cross more often, we would stop making excuses for sin in our life. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses. And we've churned things on its head so that we're asking the wrong kind of questions in the church these days. Instead of asking, will this decision bring honor to God's name, we're saying, will I lose my salvation if I do this? Now, do you really think that God wants to let people into heaven that are saying, will I lose my salvation if I do this? If we learn to see Jesus on the cross with his love for us, how could we ask such a question in the first place? What would it say about my marriage to my wife if I was saying, well, if I do this, will it cause my marriage to end? Are you kidding me? What kind of a place have you gotten to in your marriage if you're asking that kind of a question? But what does it say about your relationship to God if that's the question that you're asking? The question that we should be asking is not, is this a salvational issue? The question we should be asking is, will this bring honor to the name of God considering we're living in the anti-typical Day of Atonement? As Seventh-day Adventists, yes, we have been brought in existence to preach the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, but part of that message is to bring an understanding of the character of God and of the importance of the vindication of God and His name to the universe, and if we lower the bar and we lower the standard, then God can't work through us in the way that He wants to. And so instead of saying, is this a salvational issue, we should be asking, is this going to bring grief to the heart of God? Because I love him. Look at what he did for me on the cross. I don't want to hurt him. If you truly love your spouse, you're going to live your life in such a way that you're not bringing grief to them. And if you truly love the Lord, you're going to live your life in such a way that through his grace and power, you will seek to please him. Now, we understand that all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and that we have a merciful Savior, that if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God is good and willing to forgive. Psalms 86, 5, he is more than willing to forgive. He, is, uh, he will pardon us abundantly. So it's not as if God turns his back on you if you sin. But the question is, what is your mentality when you fell? Was it something that came in the slip of a moment and you're now you're like, oh Lord, I messed up, please bring me back? Or were you premeditated and saying, oh God won't care if I do this and I'll just come back and ask him to forgive me later anyway? And then as we grow closer in our walk with the Lord, he's going to help us so that in those moments that we're tempted to slip, we'll hang on to him. Now, one other statement I want to read to you. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 474. 
Satan has an accurate knowledge of the sins which he has tempted men to commit, and he presents these in the most exaggerated light, declaring, Will God banish me and my angels from his presence, and yet reward those who have been guilty of the same sins? You cannot do this, O Lord, in justice. Your throne will not stand in righteousness and judgment. Justice demands that sentence be pronounced against them. So Satan gets us to sin, and then he runs to God and says, These are your people, God. You're going to save them? You know, one other thing that I saw that Ellen White said about Satan, I'm not going to spend much time on this, is that Satan was sorry of the privileges that he lost in heaven. But he didn't want to change. He was just sorry that he lost the privileges. Now, let me say this. It is a very rare thing for me to hear someone say that they don't want to go to heaven. I can count on the fingers of one hand, probably, in my 40 years of life, the number of people who say they don't want to be in heaven. And every funeral I've ever been to, whether it's in the Adventist church, and I've been to a fair share that have not been Adventist funerals, sometimes it's not even been among believers, where they have been ushered either into heaven, if it's not an Adventist meeting or a funeral, or if it's an Adventist funeral, they're all going to be resurrected in the first resurrection. In fact, I saw in passing on the news uh, when a, a famous movie star, I'm not going to say their name, when they died of a drug overdose, the people at the funeral were talking about how they were in heaven with, with the Heavenly Father. People want to be in heaven. They're, people don't want to go to the lake of fire. But the question is, are you safe to be in heaven? Everybody wants to be there. Nobody wants to be looking up at the new Jerusalem as it's coming down, and you're with Satan and his angels, and the scene in Great Controversy where Satan claims that he has resurrected everyone, and you see these generals who've never lost a battle, and they claim that they're going to be taking the city. Nobody wants to be in that group. But we need to learn to see Jesus at the cross. It's a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception, sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from the right bothers him. It brings pain to him. Every deed of cruelty bothers God. It brings pain to him. Every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, I thought it might be helpful to look at a few examples of those who learn to ask the right question or who, through the grace of God, brought honor to the name of God when tested and tried. And I want to take you to James chapter 5, starting in verse 8. James chapter 5, and we're going to read through verse 11, where Scripture says, Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Now notice verse 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. You know, sometimes we say, man, I have it really tough. I've been standing for the Lord, and I'm the only one. And we can get this Elijah complex that says, I only am left in Israel. And then the Lord has to come and say, Elijah, there's 7,000 others who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Okay? And so sometimes we can get discouraged in our zeal to stand for God and we lose sight of Jesus who endured the cross and we forget that there are others who have been faithful during trial. And in James 5 verse 10 it says, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. You want to know how difficult it is, just be a prophet. Listen, I wouldn't want to be a prophet, humanly speaking, for anything. 
Just imagine if Ellen White were alive today. What kind of messages the Lord would give to her to give to the church? You want to sign up for that? Now, there are some, as Jeremiah 23, 21 says, I have not spoken to them, yet they ran. I have not given them a message, yet they prophesied. There's some who want to speak in the name of the Lord, but they don't speak in the Spirit of the Lord. But you look at Jeremiah. This is a man who writes out this extensive message to King Jehoiakim, and they read the message to, to Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim cuts it, up with, cuts it up with a knife and throws the message into the fire. And what does the Lord tell Jeremiah to do? Write it out again. And because of Jeremiah's faithfulness for speaking the message that God had given to him, he was thrown into a pit where, for all intents and purposes, he was going to die. You read other stories, and you have a group of people who come to Jeremiah and say, Ask the Lord if he has a word for us, and we will do what the Lord says. And so Jeremiah prays to the Lord, and he gives the message to the people, and when he tells them, don't go down into Egypt, because if you go down into Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come down and he'll destroy you there. So stay here, and God will protect you. And as soon as Jeremiah gives them the message, they're like, that's not what we wanted to hear. We're going to do what we want anyway, and we're going to go to Egypt. And Isaiah, the gospel prophet who spoke faithfully for the Lord, by all accounts, was cut in half for his faithfulness. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace. And yet, Scripture says, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Think of John the Baptist. No matter how hard your experience may be at the present time, God has allowed others who have come before you to go through affliction and to demonstrate patience through that affliction. And we think of Jesus who endured the cross. That's an example of patience. Verse 11 says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. To endure is to have patience. Jesus endured the cross. And then the example is given, You have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. You know, you think of the story of Job, and of everything that he went through. You know, God says of Job, have you considered my servant Job when Satan says, I've been walking around the earth? And Job says, aha, have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him on all the earth. He's one that fears God and hates evil. And then Satan says, oh, he just loves you because you've been good to him. And you know, Satan is saying the same thing today. When God looks at his last day church, he wants to say, have you considered my servants at Uchi Pines? Or have you considered my servants in the Seventh-day Adventist church? And Satan would like to say, oh, they just serve you because you're blessing them. But if you afflict them, they won't serve you anymore. That's the issue in the great controversy. And yet, despite what Job went through, we come to the end of Job chapter 1, verse 21. He says, The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He could go on to say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. In Job 13, 15. In Job 23, 10, he said, He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And by the way, if you connect that to the Laodicean message we described this morning, Job had what Laodicea needs. Job said, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Laodicea doesn't like to be tried. We want things to be easy and to just get in. Job is an incredible testimony of someone who demonstrated to the onlooking universe that you can be faithful to God even when everything goes bad in your life. Daniel and his three friends, we think of them. 
What an amazing story, and I love studying the book of Daniel, how Daniel purposed in his heart, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with a wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuch that he might not defile himself. And God blessed Daniel for his faithfulness in diet. In fact, you study Daniel chapter 1, you see all the principles of true education, physical, mental, and spiritual, where they are faithful in the area of the health message, because when they are brought to this test, they don't ask the question, are we going to lose our salvation if we eat the king's food? You know how many other Jews just went right along and ate the king's food? Because they figured if we don't do this, we're going to die, and then we'll lose our witness. We've got to keep our witness, so let's just compromise, and then God can use us. That's not how God uses us to be a witness. Daniel and his three friends said, we are not going to compromise. And it says Daniel purposed in his heart, which means he had made up his mind ahead of time. And whatever the consequences would be, this is his decision. And because of their faithfulness in physical health, they then were ten times wiser than all the wise men of Babylon. So there's physical health message, mental. They were ten times wiser. And you know, Ellen White has a statement where she says that those who have education can do ten times more good for the cause of God. If you use education rightly applied, you can do much good in the cause of God. And then the spiritual, yes, they, they had their spiritual experience, but it says God gave Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. It's almost like a little preview of the Advent movement where God gives Adventism the health message. Those who are faithful are blessed with physical health and they're blessed with mental acuity so that we're wiser than the world because we're following in, the, in God's plan. And then God gave Daniel the gift of visions and dreams and God has given Adventism the spirit of prophecy. Now we're not all prophets like Daniel, but when we're faithful to the Lord, we will understand our prophetic message. And because Daniel was faithful, then we have the story of Daniel 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are among a number of other Jews, and then the Chaldeans come to Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey, you know, the music just played, and everyone bowed down, but there's certain Jews who didn't. Notice they didn't say all the Jews. They just said there's certain Jews who have not bowed down to your image. And so Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to lose these guys because they're ten times wiser than his other wise men, and so he tries to negotiate with them, and they say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. Our God, whom we serve, can deliver us. But if not, be it known unto you, O Nebuchadnezzar, that we will not bow down and worship this image which you have set up. They were not asking, oh, you know what, <laughs> music plays, tie the shoe, Lord, forgive me. <laughs> you know, I don't, that's an, that's, I don't, there's no way I'd worship that thing. I didn't worship that, that was just, you know what that was, that was just staying out of trouble. And you know what, God in his tender mercy could forgive you but it doesn't bring honor or vindicate the name of God. And we're still talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they were faithful. And in fact, their lives so represented the life of Christ that when Nebuchadnezzar actually saw the Son of God in the fire, he recognized them because Daniel and his three friends rightly represented him in their daily lives. Let me ask you a question if the Son of Man were to appear in your sphere of influence, would people recognize him because of your influence, or would he be a total stranger to you and your sphere? Daniel and his three friends were asking the right questions. They were not concerned so much about their personal 
safety, well-being, or salvation, but the honor of the name of God, because they knew that someday, even if they died right now, that someday they would be resurrected in the resurrection to everlasting life, because they loved their God so much. And when God looks down on his last day church, you know, there is a reason why God raised up the second advent movement. God raised up the second advent movement for a very special reason. When we look at the prophetic messages and we look at the second advent movement in the book of Revelation, we see that God raises up a group of people who are to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, as Revelation 12, 17 says, or who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, as Revelation 14, verse 12 says. And yet Satan is attacking this movement by making it sound like keeping the commandments is legalism when that is the very identifying characteristic that God has said will set apart God's remnant church from the rest of the world. And the honor of God's name is at stake because the commandments of God are a transcript of his character. And so we look down to the end of the earth and we see in Revelation chapter 7 the four angels holding the four winds until the 144,000 are sealed in their foreheads. And we see that this seal is the name of God, the name of the Father, written in the foreheads of the 144,000. And I believe, just looking at what is happening in the world around us, that Jesus is trying to come back. We see these things happening, the hurricanes and the earthquakes. The four winds are starting to be released, and God is allowing them to be released to see if his people are ready to go through to the final crisis. Of the 144,000, it says, they follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. But guess what, friends? Don't think that you're going to follow Jesus everywhere he goes in heaven and throughout the universe, throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, if you're not willing to follow him here right now in everything that he asks. Let's go back to James 5, verse 7. I'm gonna, that's one verse earlier than we read starting in verse 8 earlier. We're going to pick it up again in verse 7 where it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. You know, sometimes we think that we're waiting for Jesus to come, and yes, we are waiting for Jesus to come. But did you realize that Jesus is also waiting for us? That he is waiting until he has the precious fruit of the earth? and that he has long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. You know, it's interesting that the latter rain is poured out at the end of the harvest. Just before the crop is ready to be fully ripened, the latter rain is poured out, and then when the latter rain comes, then the harvest is ripened, and God then can harvest his people. Now, Mark chapter 4 says there's first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. You can be perfect at every stage, fully surrendered at every stage, but God is not going to allow the final events of earth's history to transpire without a mature group of people. Salvation is the same as it always has been. We're saved by grace through faith. We're justified by faith. We are saved by the grace of Jesus. But there is something different about the spiritual maturity of the 144,000 who are going to go through the final crisis versus the thief on the cross. Both will be in heaven, but they have different levels of spiritual maturity. Do you see the difference? Both were fully surrendered, but the thief on the cross was like the blade of grass that just came up through the ground. The 144,000 will be a fully ripened fruit ready for the final crisis of earth's history. Let me read to you this familiar statement 
from Christ object lessons, but I'm going to add something to it that is often overlooked. This is Christ object lessons, actually starting on page 68. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This fruit can never perish, but will produce after its kind a harvest unto eternal life. Then, the next paragraph, when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, where all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel, Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. Now notice what the fruit looks like. It's the fruits of the Spirit. Now let's just make this practical as I wrap this up. We're thinking about this in terms of how Adventism vindicates God's name. Now realize it is God working through Adventism that brings the vindication. It's not our efforts that vindicate God. It's our surrender that allows him to work in us that brings the vindication. But let me ask you, if you think about your life in terms of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. You know, sometimes we can have two or three of those fruits and say, I think I'm good enough. That's not evidence of the, the Holy Spirit in your life. If you are fully surrendered to Jesus and he is living in you, the fruits of the Spirit will be manifest in you. Love. Love your enemies. Do good to them which persecute you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. Has your love for God reached such, reached such a level that you have love even for your enemies. I mean, some of us have a hard time loving our own families, let alone loving our enemies. And we say we're marching to Zion? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. Well, I hate to say it, but there are a lot of Adventists. Oh, man. I got through my hour of devotions today. This chapter was really something. Now I'm going to have to go to work. Yep, just got to plot along, and someday Jesus will come, and then I'll be happy. Really? If you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you're going to have joy. Love, joy, peace. Wow, the devil has done a number in so many Adventist churches. Where is the peace of God when there's so much strife over this and that and the other thing? Long-suffering, which is patience. Do you have patience when tested? You know, I'm going to get to this in another message later this week, but Ellen White has a statement in Christ's object lessons, where she says, it is in a crisis that character is revealed. And many of us fall apart, and our patience goes right out the window the moment the trial comes. Oh, we're patient when we're going fine. Everything's going smoothly the way we want it to do. Oh, yeah, I'm experiencing the joy of the Lord, and my patience is here. But when you're tested, do you have the patience, the long-suffering? That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in your life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. You know, it is not a virtue to be a bull in the china shop. Some people think 
that they have to point out everybody's sin in their life because we're here to give the straight testimony and we're here to be Elijah. And yes, there is the element of giving a straight testimony and of giving the Elijah message, but just make sure that it's God's spirit that has placed that burden upon you because there's too many bulls in the china shop that go through and wreak havoc and don't have the gentleness of the Holy Spirit as they're reproving sin. Jesus rebuked with tears in his eyes. And there are some people who do so in a carnal way that brings a certain sense of satisfaction to their carnality to call out sin. And that's not evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, God can still use that to bring conviction. So if someone is speaking to you and pointing out sin in your life, and they're doing it in the wrong way, don't dismiss what they're saying just because they did so in the wrong spirit. But please don't be that person that's the bull in the china shop meekness, gentleness, sorry, I have to start over or I forget where I am. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. You know, where is the faith in Adventism today? When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? You know, you do have an advantage when you live in a self-supporting institution because you learn to rely on the Lord a lot more than some of us who are just out there doing the usual lines of labor where we have a paycheck where we know things are coming from. So that's a blessing for you because you learn how to develop faith more and to trust in God more. Meekness and temperance, the last two fruits. Moses was the meekest man on, the earth, on all the earth, and it didn't make him a weak leader. He's the best leader the world's ever seen. Temperance, that's the health message. That's the right arm of the third angel's message. Boy, there's a lot of intemperate Adventists today. And it's not just diet. That's certainly part of it. If you can control your appetite, you can control everything else. But there's intemperance in so many different ways. You know, I hate to say it, but, you know, people in ministry who can't control their appetite are not good witnesses for the gospel of Christ. And the Lord can give us victory in those areas. And those are the fruits that Jesus is looking for when it says, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Sometimes we say, oh, well, that means that I need to stop doing this or stop doing that. And there may be an element to that. But we lose sight of the big picture that we need the fruits of the Spirit in our life. That's what is holding up the coming of Jesus. We think that the fruits of the Spirit is just A, B, C, and yet that's the very thing that has kept Jesus from coming. The lack of love, the lack of joy, the lack of peace, the lack of long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, the lack of meekness, the lack of temperance, which is an evidence that the Holy Spirit has not produced the fruit that is needed in our lives, the fruit that we need to go through the final crisis. Friends, if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit and you're going through the final crisis, you're going to be fighting against Babylon, as I said earlier, with the spirit of Babylon. And that will misrepresent the character of God before the universe. So God waits until he has a people that will represent his name and his character, who will be a demonstration of what his power can do in sinful man. You think about it this way, and this kind of builds on what Brother Fiedler's been speaking about. You look at the great controversy and you think of it this way. Satan was a perfect being in a perfect environment who said God's law couldn't be kept he fell, we have the mystery of iniquity, and then he says, look, Adam and Eve were perfect, they fell too, they couldn't keep the law, and so you have humanity that has degenerated over 6,000 years of sin now, and Jesus perfectly represents God's law, but then Satan says, oh, well, I know he came in fallen humanity, but he was just Jesus, you know, he was God, you know, whatever. And then God flips the thing on Satan's head and says, what are you going to say now when he says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What are you going to say now, Satan? These people came from the weakest generation that ever lived. 
And I'm not just talking about one person now. It's not just Job. It's not just Daniel. It's not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not just a prophet here and a prophet there. This is a group of people who have reached spiritual maturity, and they lived in the most wicked generation that has ever lived. And look at them now, Satan. What can you say? And we're not going to be going around saying, see, we did it. We're going to be meek about it. We won't even feel that we've reached that point. The closer we come to Christ, the more sinful we will appear in our own eyes. Because we know what we are like the moment we let go of our hold of Jesus. That is how Adventism vindicates the character of God. I'm going to go back to my original statement just to remind you of where we began. The plan of salvation, this is Patriarchs and Prophets, 68-69. The plan of salvation had a broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded, but it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. Jesus vindicated the character of God before the universe in his death on the cross, and through Adventism, God has designed that he will vindicate himself through a faithful people who have the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. And friends, I hope and pray that this earth doesn't go on much longer. I hope and I pray that these signs that we are seeing around us are the beginning of sorrows that Matthew 24 talks about that shows that God's servants are about to be sealed in their foreheads. And God is looking for a group of people who will settle into the truth intellectually and spiritually so that they cannot be moved, so that our characters will be a reflection and a reproduction of the character of Jesus. Is that what you want? Because that's what God has designed for each one of you. If that's your desire... I would invite you to kneel with me as we pray, as we close this meeting tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us this evening. Lord, I pray that you would bring to our hearts whatever it is in our lives that are keeping us from misrepresenting, or that, that, that are continuing to have us misrepresent your character. Forgive us for where we have fallen short. Thank you for your tender mercy, for your loving kindness, that you are long-suffering to us and ready to forgive when we fall. But Lord, may we reach a point in our walk with you that we are fully surrendered and that we stay fully connected. And may we have the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. May that be seen in our lives. May Jesus be seen. And may we point others to Jesus. Forgive us for asking the wrong questions, for asking things such as, will this cause me to lose my salvation? Help us to think differently. Help us to think the way David did as he came back to you in repentance. Help us to be concerned that your name will be cleared when our name comes up in the judgment. That when you declare us to be just, that you will be just for saying such. Thank you for giving us time to prepare, but help us to use that time that you have given us to be fully surrendered so that we can go forth to the world with a message of Christ and his righteousness, to reach people with the right arm of the gospel. And may Jesus say when he comes of us, well done, good and faithful servant. So thank you, Lord, for your mercy, and go with us now through the rest of this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.